Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Weaver Family Saga. Ward Weaver III had not seen his father since his mother Patricia took him and his two little sisters to live in Oregon. Hearing that his father was on trial for murder, Ward III went to visit his father in prison in California. He became fascinated with his father's case and decided to watch his trial from start to finish for the murder of Barbara Lavoie and Robert Radford. While listening to the trial, he found out who his father and grandfather really were. During the trial, he heard that his grandfather sexually abused his aunt and physically abused his father. Ward also learned that his father, Ward Jr., had raped and tormented his aunt. He also found out that his grandmother had slept in the bed with his father until he was an adult. Prior to the start of the trial, detectives had a hard time finding the killer of Robert Radford. It was nearly 17 months before they knew that Ward Jr. was responsible for Robert and Barbara's murders. It wasn't until a man by the name of Ricky Gibson, who was Ward Jr.'s cellmate, while he was in prison for the attempted murder of David and the rape and kidnapping of Michelle. While they were together and bunking, Ward Jr. told Ricky that he had murdered other people and had gotten away with it. Ricky told the police what Ward Jr. had told him. He went into specifics about the murder and where he had buried Barbara, which in turn led the police to finding Barbara's body buried in Ward Jr.'s backyard. After Ricky told the police more information, Ward Jr. was charged with the murders of Barbara and Robert. When Ward Jr. was questioned about the murders, he waived his Miranda rights and only wanted to speak to his mother. If he could speak to his mother, he would tell the police everything they wanted to know. The detectives agreed to this request and let Ward Jr. talk to his mother, Dorothy. After his conversation with his mother, he spoke to the detectives in great detail. He admitted to killing Robert Radford with a cheater pipe and killing Barbara by strangulation. He went into detail about multiple places in which he buried Barbara's body prior to her being buried in his backyard at his home in Oroville, California. He told them where he stopped and raped her and where he eventually killed her. To be certain, the detectives requested that Ward Jr. draw a map of the places where he had buried Barbara, and Ward did as he was requested. When the police went to the first location on the map, a rural place in Oroville, they found that the area where the earth had been disturbed had black electrical tape nearby. During his trial for Barbara and Robert, Ward Jr.'s defense team told the court that he had heard voices since he was 17 years old. There were two voices specifically, a man and a woman. The woman he heard in his head started when he was 17 years old, and he called her Liddell. The male voice started in his head when he was in Vietnam. Ward Jr. stated that he had trusted the male voice because when he was in Vietnam, the male voice protected him and kept him alive. 
during his murder trial of Barbara Lavoie and Robert Radford, nearly 20 doctors examined Ward Jr. and testified on his mental capacity. Multiple doctors were called to testify at the trial that were initially a part of David and Michelle's trial as well. In 1981, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. George Chappelle was appointed to Ward Jr.'s case against David and Michelle to examine his sanity. He was also called to testify at the trial of Barbara Lavoie and Robert Radford. Dr. Chappelle told the court that Ward Jr. told him that he was taking 600 milligrams of an antipsychotic medication by the name of Marilil and that he had heard voices for months and even years at a time. Ward Jr. also told Dr. Chappelle that when he looked in the mirror to shave, the voices would tell him to cut his own throat, but he never listened. Dr. Chappelle had his doubts regarding Ward Jr.'s claims and said he had, quote, serious questions as to whether the defendant really heard voices. This was due to the fact there was no direct evidence of him having heard such voices from any person he knew, including his family. If the defendant had heard voices for most of his life, then surely someone, his wife, children, mother, father, or a friend, would confirm this, but no one could. Ward Jr. told Dr. Chappelle that he was also taking amphetamines as a truck driver for the 18 months prior to the murders in order to stay awake while on the road. Dr. Chappelle still was not convinced that Ward Jr. was suffering from any mental ailments. He stated that he believed that Ward Jr. was faking some of his symptoms and that he was legally sane during the crimes that he committed against David and Michelle. Another doctor, a psychologist by the name of Theodore Donaldson, examined Ward Jr. And during his examination, Ward Jr. explained that the voices in his head had argued about what to do with Michelle. He knew the rape was wrong, but the bad voice told him to do it. Ward Jr. stated that when he picked up Michelle, he thought she was very pretty and didn't want to hurt her but the voices overtook him and made him do what he did. Just like Dr. Chappelle, Dr. Donaldson believed that Ward Jr. was fabricating his voices. He did diagnose Ward Jr. with mixed personality disorder and stated that because of this, Ward Jr. had an extreme small set of morals and values and also had a lack of impulse control. The court wanted to know if Ward Jr. could possibly be schizophrenic and Dr. Donaldson stated that he believed that Ward Jr. was not. Just as Dr. Chappelle, Dr. Donaldson said that Ward Jr. did not suffer from any mental disease that would cause him to commit the murders of this magnitude. Another doctor by the name of Roland Rose was also doing an evaluation of Ward Jr. while he was in Chino State Prison. He stated that Ward Jr. was extremely hostile towards women Quote, Ward Jr. exhibits intense hostility towards women. Some of the doctors Ward Jr. saw believed he was hearing voices and could possibly be schizophrenic 
because schizophrenia is a genetic mental illness that can be passed through family. And Ward Jr.'s aunt and cousin were diagnosed with this mental illness. Ultimately, the conclusion that the courts came to, after reviewing all the reports and listening to all the testimony, Ward Jr. was of sound mind and sane when he murdered Robert and Barbara. In addition, they found him sane in the previous trial for David and Michelle. The jury deliberated for 42 minutes and concluded that Ward Jr. was indeed sane at the time of the murders. After his murder trial, he was found guilty of the murders for Barbara Lavoie and Robert Radford and was sentenced to death. Ward Jr. was sent to San Quentin State Penitentiary to await his execution. Since then, Ward Jr. has filed several appeals trying to get his conviction overturned. Ultimately, the ruling was upheld and his requests were denied. Ward Sr. was an awful man, husband and father, and so was his son, Ward Jr. However, Ward Jr.'s firstborn son, Ward III, he did not have contact with his father for the majority of his life because his mother, Trish, left with the children. Therefore, many thought that Ward III would escape the life of his father and grandfather. They were wrong. The evil that had consumed this family now reached them, the third generation of the Weaver clan. According to Ward III's mother, Patricia, he was a happy child. They moved away from their abusive father prior to his enlistment in Vietnam and moved to Oregon. Patricia married a man by the name of Bob Boudreaux. Her marriage to Bob would soon be as abusive and as horrible as her marriage to Ward Jr. Bob was a drinker and was known to physically abuse Patricia and the children. Bob also had children of his own prior to his marriage to Patricia. To escape the torment, Patricia would take her children to motels to sleep for the night. Ward Jr. and his sisters found safety in these nights as their stepfather was not there to abuse them or their mother. Patricia was a waitress and Bob was a longshoreman. They lived in subsidized housing because of their financial difficulties. Many of their financial problems stemmed from Bob running up bar tabs at local pubs and Patricia having to pay them off. During the holidays, there were no presents under the tree. Rather, there were only socks and underwear for the children because neither Patricia or Bob could afford to pay for the gifts. In 1975, when Ward III was just 12 years old, he went on a business trip with his stepfather, Bob. During the trip, other co-workers of Bob called Patricia to inform her that Bob had left Ward III alone in the hotel room to go out to the bars. Patricia, upset at this, told Bob to return home as soon as possible. Patricia remembered the day that they returned home. When they pulled up to the house, Ward III exited the truck and glared at his mother. She knew something was wrong. Quote, 
That's the day I lost my son. Patricia did not know what happened on the trip, but she knew something in her son was gone and a new child surfaced, a dangerous one. Ward III became extremely violent and mean towards his siblings and started to torment them at any opportunity he had. The first of his victims would be his stepbrother, Robert. Robert stated that as a young boy, he was terrified of dogs. Ward III knew this. One day, Ward III took his stepbrother, Robert, out to the backyard. He chained him up to the tree that was next to a fence where the neighbors had a vicious dog that tried to attack anyone that came by. Ward III left him chained up for hours and this tormented his stepbrother. During the entire time, Ward III laughed and would inch his brother's face closer and closer to the fence while the neighbor's dog was snapping and trying to bite him. Not only was this one incident, Ward also beat on his little stepbrother Robert at any chance he got. However, Robert was not the only sibling who suffered abuse. Ward III also abused his little sisters, Tammy and Teresa. Tammy has stated in multiple interviews that her brother Ward III tormented her as a child. He was cruel and he hurt her emotionally and physically. Ward Jr. at one point took a BB gun and shot his sister Tammy multiple times in the back with it and thought that it was funny. The family also liked to watch wrestling on the weekends, and Ward III would take what he saw on the television and do it to his siblings. It was stated that he enjoyed putting his siblings into headlocks and beating them up. His mother, Patricia, tried to make life for the children as happy as she could. She tried to control Bob's drinking during the children's birthdays or at holidays, but the children knew what was going on. She also tried to control Ward III, but to no avail. The family eventually moved to Portland when Ward III was in high school, during which he got a job at a restaurant. Within a short couple years, he graduated from Marshall High School, but things took an even darker turn. A relative of Ward III had accused him of rape, and instead of going to jail, the judge at the time let Ward III enlist into the Navy. In 1981, Ward III was now a navalman and was shipped off to the Philippines. Once stationed in the Philippines, Ward III met Maria Stout. They quickly fell in love and wanted to get married. But the relationship was stained with abuse from the start. One evening, Ward III slapped Maria and hit her head on the bedpost when she was five months pregnant with their first child. Ward III was quickly arrested for assault, but Maria refused to press charges, and Ward III was let go. Just a short time later, in 1982, they had their first child, Francis Ward Weaver. Shortly after their first child's birth, Ward Weaver III was honorably discharged from the Navy due to his drinking and inability to show up for work. After he was discharged from the Navy, he and Maria 
moved to Bakersfield, California with their son, Francis. They married in 1984 and had another child, a son named Alex. In 1986, Ward III attacked his friend's child, a young girl. He was drunk at a bowling alley and needed a ride home, so he called his friend. His friend sent his daughter and his daughter's friend to pick up Ward III. When the girls arrived, they saw that Ward was belligerent and drunk. They tried to get him into the car, but he became more upset. That was when Ward III struck one of the young girls in the head with a block of concrete. He was arrested and charged with assault and spent three years in prison. After his release, he reconnected with Maria and they relocated to Canby, Oregon. There, they had their third child together in 1989, a daughter who they named Mallory. While in Oregon, Ward III and Maria operated a small store. However, the store was soon shut down because of financial difficulties. By 1993, Maria had enough abuse and divorced Ward III. According to reports, he was selling drugs and was an extreme alcoholic. A year after his divorce from Maria, Ward III managed to get into another relationship with an 18-year-old named Christy. This relationship, too, would prove to be an abusive one. In 1994, in their first year together, Ward III and Christy were arguing one evening, and it sent him into a rage. Christy was laying on the couch in their living room trying to escape the abuse when Ward III came up to her and hit her over the head with a frying pan multiple times. Again, Ward III was arrested on assault charges, but they were soon dropped. Christy was so terrified of Ward III that she refused to testify against him, which ultimately led to the charges being dropped. Regardless of the abuse, Christy and Ward III patched things up in their relationship and married in 1996. In that same year, Ward III's children came to live with him and Christy. Things seemed to be going well, and they started to act like a real family. But within just a year, Ward III ended up having an affair with another woman, which led to ending the relationship between Christy and him. Ward III was not single for long. By 1998, he started a new relationship with another woman who we will refer to as Jan. They moved into a rental house on Beaver Creek Road in Oregon City, Oregon. His son Francis and daughter Mallory moved in with him as well. Mallory attended Gardner Middle School where she became friends with two girls, Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis. Mallory was on the dance team with Ashley and Miranda, and both girls would go to Mallory's house for sleepovers. Soon, many people started to become concerned with Mallory's friends and her father's relationships with them. It was reported that Ward III was seen kissing Ashley when he took her to school one day, and at one point she was even seen sleeping in the same bed with him. Jan found out about this behavior and quickly left Ward III. Teachers and family members reported their concerns about 12-year-old Ashley and Ward III, who was 38, but it was to no avail. The reports were mishandled by Child Protective Services, 
and they were never followed up on. In 2001, Ashley reported to a school official that Ward III had attempted to rape her on a family vacation. This too was reported to state officials, but the report would fall on deaf ears. In January 2002, just a few months after the rape allegations against Ward III, Ashley Pond went missing. Then, a short two months later, Miranda Gaddis went missing as well. It was not until the summer of 2002 that the bodies of Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis were found on Ward Weaver III's rental property on Beaver Creek Road. This case is covered in Episodes 1 and 2 of Evil Olive. Ward III was charged with the murders of Ashley and Miranda, and in September 2004, a plea bargain was struck between Ward III and the prosecutors. He pled guilty to aggravated murder and sexual abuse and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He still currently resides at the Snake River Correctional Institute near Ontario, Oregon. Ward III's youngest child was sent to live with her aunt after the murders of her friends and her older brother Francis Weaver was an adult, so he started to live on his own. All three children, Mallory, Alex, and Francis, have had their troubles in their life due to their father's gruesome murders. In August 2015, the eldest son, Francis Weaver, was involved in a burglary with another friend, but was acquitted of the charges. In November 2005, Alex, the middle child of Ward III, pled guilty to attempted assault and was sentenced to two years in prison. By 2014, life had not become easier for the eldest son, Francis Weaver. In February of that year, Francis and some of his friends were arrested for murder in Grants Pass, Oregon. It was reported that it was a drug deal gone bad. In March 2016, Francis Weaver was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Francis's attorney appealed the conviction, but the Oregon Court of Appeals upheld the lower court's ruling. In January 2020, the Oregon Supreme Court heard the case and they ruled in September 2020 that the trial court had erred in excluding a plea bargain for the defendant. The Oregon Supreme Court reversed the ruling that was upheld by the Oregon Appellate Court and reversed the ruling from the Circuit Court. The case has been sent back to the Circuit Court for further proceedings. No trial date has yet been set. As stated in the beginning, are killers made or are they born? If we take the examples of Ward Sr., Ward Jr., Ward III, and Francis Weaver. They all have some type of role in either a murder, rape, or assault. Was this behavior that the Weaver family suffered from for four generations embedded in their DNA and predetermined at birth? Or was this behavior taught through their lives? Ward Jr. lived with his father, Ward Sr., and his mother, Dorothy, his entire life. This would then explain the possibility that the crimes he committed as an adult could directly be a product of his upbringing. However, 
It does not explain Ward III's crimes that he committed as an adult. Ward III had virtually no contact with his father until he was in his early 20s. His crimes and actions were not a direct correlation with his father Ward Jr. or his upbringing. That then leaves the alternative. It was in their DNA. Ward Sr., Ward Jr., Ward III, and Francis Weaver were all predestined to commit their crimes because they were born that way. This, to some, seems like a logical conclusion, if not for one big factor. When Ward III was in prison, it was discovered that his eldest son, Francis Weaver, was not his biological child. A DNA test was conducted while Ward III was in prison, and it was for investigative purposes regarding the Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis case. Francis's mother, Maria, admitted that she did have an affair in the beginning of her and Ward III's relationship. Francis Weaver was in no way related to Ward Weaver III or the Weaver family legacy of crime, rape, and murder. As you can see, there is no conclusive answer as to what makes a killer a killer, a rapist a rapist, or someone evil. Many want a simple answer, because if we know it, we can understand it and get ahead of it and possibly not be afraid of it. Truth be told, there is no simple answer for a killer's behaviors, and that is what scares people the most, that there is no answer for any of their atrocities and that there may never be one.